Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest in today's episode, Barbara Aerosmith-Young, is an entrepreneur, an educator, a leader in helping students overcome learning difficulties, and the author of her best-selling book, The Woman Who Changed Her Brain. Some have said that Barbara's story is truly heroic, even on par with the achievements of Helen Keller. Barbara Aerosmith is the founder of the Aerosmith program, which is an assessment process and a suite of cognitive exercises designed to stimulate and strengthen weak areas of cognitive functioning that underlie a range of learning difficulties. The genesis of the Aerosmith program was cognitive exercises, which lies in Barbara's own journey of discovery and innovation to overcome her own severe learning disabilities. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. Back in grade one, she was diagnosed as having a mental block, which today would have been identified as multiple learning disabilities. She read and wrote everything backwards. She had trouble processing concepts in language continuously got lost and was physically uncoordinated. Barbara eventually learned to read and write from left to right and mask a number of the symptoms of her learning disabilities through very heroic effort on her part. However, she continued throughout her educational career to have difficulty with very specific aspects of learning. Forge ahead many years later and the Aerosmith program has been delivered for over 40 plus years throughout the world and continues to expand and grow to change students' lives in the most profound ways. On this episode, she'll share her incredibly fascinating journey of learning challenges that led to a global program 
for thousands with similar challenges around the world. Let's get this show started. Barbara Aerosmith Young, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Incredibly excited to have you on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Man, we got lots lots of things to talk about. And, um, you know, Barbara, you're a best-selling author. You're the founder of your program and schools. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. You're best-selling author of the book, The Woman Who Changed Her Brain. That's so interesting. I once had somebody at a bookstore ask me, is there a book on the man who changed his brain? <laughs> I said, actually, you know, it applies whether you're a male or a female, but it was just an interesting question. Probably wishful thinking, you know, maybe. Yeah. Hey, right, so, yeah. so Barbara, let's, in all of that, I mean, you've got big accolades, you've got just a great, great bio, but tell me uh, for our listeners, who is Barbara Aerosmith Young? What are you all about? Talk to me about changing brain and let's get into this conversation. But tell me a little bit about just who you are and what are you doing today? Because we're then we'll go yeah. backwards. Okay. So I, I guess um, I think I'm all about transformation and service. Uh, I was thinking uh, earlier today, you know, I grew up in a family where, you know, when we said grace around the table, it was, you know, how can we be of service you know, to others, to the world, how can we make the world a better place? So uh, to me, that was was a touchstone. And then, uh, you know, having a father who was an inventor and a scientist uh, who, you know, saw possibilities where there weren't things in existence currently, I think those two things really shaped me and that is where I am today, being of service to individuals that are struggling with learning difficulties as I did and uh, transforming futures in essence uh, through the application of the principles of neuroplasticity to stimulate cognitive function to change um, individuals' brains so they can learn more efficiently, more effectively with ease and joy. And, um, you know, the where learning, instead of becoming a struggle, actually becomes an adventure. So uh, so I think, you know, where I came from shaped, uh, you know, who I am and what I'm doing today. You know, you use the term uh, learning difficulties. You don't use the term a learning disability, which I, I, I don't know if I'm picking up on something, but there's, there seems there's some intentionality there. I believe. Is, yes. is, is that the case? Yes, very definitely. I I mean, in, it's, it's interesting. In North America, we use the term learning disability. That's that's the term to describe, you know, the kinds of difficulties I have, the, the difficulties that students, um, you know, that come to my work have. Uh, and it was really when I was in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, they use the term learning difficulty. Mm-hmm. And so I started to really change my language because it is a difficulty. I mean, there's some people that talk about a learning difference. And and yes, it is a difference, but there is a difficulty. So to me, learning difference, I think, oversimplifies the challenges because my experience was, yes, I had differences, but they created significant difficulties. I don't like the term disability because there's all sorts of implications around that. I mean, it, it's a difficulty. It's a challenge uh, which leads to making certain aspects of learning difficult. Um, so we're working to change that language in in our writing. The, the challenge is we still have to reference learning disability because that's what people in North America are used to and thinking about. But, but 
we're wanting to move that conversation to look at is the difficulty. And if we think about anybody like ourselves, you know, we don't necessarily have to have been diagnosed with a learning disability or learning difficulty, but we all know there's certain things that we avoid because they're challenging or difficult. And that's just probably because there's a cognitive function that isn't sort of up to par that uh, in certain uh, aspects of learning, it it causes some difficulty, so we avoid it. So I just, I think it's a, it's a much more accurate terminology. So let's talk a little bit because, you know, I think we have to get for listeners, talk about the challenges. Let's talk about the challenges you face because the book that you wrote and the program that you developed, the school, do we call them schools? I guess we call them schools, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that you went on to, open and and move forward in a really, really big way, all stemmed from your own learning challenges growing up. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So why don't we talk about that? Because, you know, I know there's lots of parents listening to this. I know it's going to be a very interesting topic when we talk about learning difficulties, because there's lots of connotation with kids, you know, you know, is it a learning difficulty? Is it, you know, is it ADD? Is it, too much time on their smartphones and devices and are they really developing and is our brain changing because of technology and what kids are doing and how they're learning they're not reading as much they're watching video they're watching sound bites of two minutes and 60 seconds i mean there's so many things but let's talk about your journey to developing the program and the book so let's go back a little ways and you mentioned your father was a scientist and an inventor Yes, yes. So, um, so my beginnings, uh, you know, I was, my parents realized that there was something a little off about me even before I got into school. Um, you know, they, there are five children in the family. So I have four brothers, two older, two younger. And so, you know, my parents had some other children to compare me to. And, uh, you know, I remember my father saying, uh, you know, that, that, you know, we're just, take me longer to understand certain things. Uh, and he was a mathematician and a physicist. So, um, you know, things like numbers, but even sequence, cause and effect, you know, as a child, like, why does this happen? You know, what is this kind of behavior going to lead to? But certainly once I got, got into grade one, I was identified as having a mental block because this was in the 1950s. And at that ter- at that time, the term learning disability didn't exist. So uh, the best descriptor that I was given was that I had a mental block. And being quite literal, one of my problems was comprehension and understanding things. And also I was young. Uh, I thought I had a piece of wood, like, you know, I, children's mental block, a block in my head that made learning difficult. And later I came to understand that, no, I didn't have a wooden cube in my head, but I had blockages in part of my parts of my brain that made learning uh, challenging. So, you know, in grade one, I struggled to learn how to read. I struggled to learn how to write mathematics, you know, uh, if you gave me 12 and 14, I'd add the four and then the one and then the two and then the one. I mean, it was just random, like, because I, I didn't really understand the concept of of numbers and what you did with them. You know, I also struggled with social relations because I didn't really understand um, meaning. So if somebody spoke to me, uh, you know, I would have to think about what they were saying to try to understand it. I mean, if it was concrete, like, 
is sunny outside, I could understand that because I could conjure up an image of sun or if it's raining, I could conjure up an image of rain. But as soon as it became at all abstract or complex, I just absolutely didn't understand it. And I had this image of myself. I had several images. One was, you know, being in a fog, you know, as if there was fog all around me or surrounded in cotton candy. And I was constantly trying to push through that fog or that cotton candy to try to grasp, you know, what was happening and understand it. But I never could. It always felt like there was a barrier or I had this image that there was a plate glass window that my face was pressed against. And on the other side, there was a banquet. There were all these people having a wonderful time, but I couldn't engage because that that plate glass window was blocking me from being able to participate. So, you know, struggled academically, but also struggled uh, socially. And then I had another learning difficulty that affected um, knowing where my body was in space. So I was very awkward and clumsy. And that's what my parents picked up also before I started school. So, you know, some students struggle with some of the academics, but maybe they excel in terms of sports. I was the last child ever chosen on any sports team uh, because I was clumsy. I was absolutely no asset to any physical activity. So, you know, I didn't really shine anywhere. And my experience in grade one, uh, I kind of joke, I became a workaholic. You know, I would come home at lunchtime because my school was across the street and my mother would have flashcards to teach me how to read and basic numeracy. And then I'd come home after school and she would have flashcards. And I certainly didn't appreciate it at the time. I'm now very grateful because, you know, her persistence meant that I learned how to read and I learned how to write, but it didn't address the underlying learning difficulties. So I really feel like I was given a life sentence in grade one. Um, my teacher said to my parents, don't have high expectations for your daughter. Uh, she's going to struggle all the way through her schooling and you know, probably not really amount to much. So it, it was pretty traumatic to hear those words and, um, and certainly... She was right in terms of the struggle. I'm hoping she's not right in terms that I didn't amount to much. But yeah, it was a struggle. My schooling was a struggle. Now, I don't want to risk taking it off on a, on a tangent, but a couple of things. So, you know, you started to see this in, you know, early, you know, early elementary school, grade one, grade two. Were you aware at the time? How much awareness did you have of your struggles and that you weren't the same as the other kids and that you weren't learning that? And then there's that part of it. And then the next part of it, were you being teased in school? Were you being bullied because of it? Were you being judged by it? And 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 do you have a recollection of how you were feeling at that time? Were you feeling like, were you feeling like stupid? Or what are the what was? Do you, do you have any kind of idea of how you were recall of how you were feeling at that that point in your life? Um, very much so. I mean, stupid was a word that I applied to myself. Bad was a word that I applied to myself. Absolutely, I was aware that I did not learn like the other grade one students, because I could, I could look around in my classroom and see, you know, they would open a book and, and be reading. I would open the book and, you know, would read backwards, upside down, read the words incorrectly. So very, very clear. And they had reading groups at that time that they named. They had the turtles, 
the rabbits and the squirrels, right? And clearly I was in the turtle group and, uh, you know, I don't know, the, I guess the teacher felt that, you know, people wouldn't really know that that was not the group to be in, but it was obvious. So yes, I knew in, in grade one, um, I actually got the strap at that time. They, you know, gave the, the strap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Or martial punishment. In, in, yeah. yeah oh. In, in grade, grade one. And I think, I, you know, I, I think it's just my teacher's frustration. I mean, I, I was, she didn't know how to deal with me and I would have meltdowns. I was so unhappy. I would spend, you know, significant amount of time in the washroom because I think my teacher was happy because uh, I just wanted to get out of class because it was so painful. And I, I just think in a moment of frustration because I was writing everything backwards, reading backwards. And when I wrote backwards, I'd smear everything because, you know, my hand was sweaty and I was nervous and, um, and she thought I was doing this deliberately. Well, <laughs> I wasn't clever enough to be doing it deliberately. It was just, you know, to frustrate her. It was just, you know, how I was, how I was learning. So, so certainly right in grade one, um, yeah, I knew that something was off, something was different. And, and, you know, I, I, the, and I came to see myself as, as, uh, not intelligent, um, and and the concept of bad because somehow there, I must be bad if I wasn't doing the things that the other students were doing. Well, yeah, and, so. and, and I mean, really, I mean, you've got you've got teachers and and you know people that are surrounding you that don't understand. They're they've got no education around it. They you know these are things, of course, that back at that time nobody knew. So there's not really compassion for it. You're struggling. So it also, I guess it makes sense on the social awkwardness or shutting down socially. I mean, if you've got that conversation going in your head on in your head, where do you even have the self-esteem to have social interactivity in a, in a, you know, kind of a powerful or meaningful way when you don't have a really good view of yourself and that's even enforced by your teachers i mean how much what if what just as you're describing this scenario i'm actually having a a visceral feeling for you mm -hmm. around that what, what that must have been like so you're going through elementary school and you've got this going on your parents are understanding of it but i just one question before we go on I, i'm interested in knowing barbara often we see and hear stories. I don't want to say often I see because I don't, but I, I hear stories and have had the experience of, you know, individuals who are, are challenged in one side of it, but are actually got some amazing gifts on the other side of that, which is, you know, a real kind of ironic place to be where they've got no skills over here and then are over uh, the top skills on another side. Were you at that time, were you able to identify some of your strengths that were showing up or was there, were, were there strengths showing up? I mean, you were physically struggling because you had no sense of where your body was or what it was doing. You've got a mental block <laughs> that sounds like a wood block in your head. You know, you're really challenged with that. Was there some, was some, was there some gifts that were starting to show up? I think um, there were some, I can't, I'm not sure exactly what grade I realized, like I, I certainly wasn't aware in the first early grades, sure. but I did, you know, later on recognize that I had a, a pretty much a photographic visual memory and an auditory verbatim memory. Mm. Um, and that got me a long distance, which I'm not sure if that said what that says about the education system, mm. but um, I, you know, I, I, and I think, I had strengths there, but I think I overdeveloped them to compensate for my difficulties. So my ritual, probably starting in about grade six, is I would lay all my notebooks out on my bed to study. And I would just, I would 
cry from the depths of my soul. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was probably putting myself in a Zen state, you know, by draining all the emotion out of my system because I knew what I was setting out to do was going to be incredibly hard. And then I would basically memorize my notebooks from page one right to the end. And my ritual was that I would keep going until I could see the first word on the first page, close my eyes, and I could go through all of my notebooks uh, in my mind's eye visually. So when I then went into write an exam, I would do a match, right? I would look at that question and I would close my eyes and I would flip through to try to find a match and then put down that content uh, on the page. And sometimes I did a really good match. So I get 90 or hundred percent. And sometimes I did a really bad match because I didn't really understand the question and I might get 10%. And sadly, what my teachers concluded was I hadn't really worked very hard for that 10%. Well, mm. I worked equally hard for the 10 and the hundred. It's just, I misunderstood the, the question. And then the verbatim uh, auditory memory, you know, I think, again, I think I had a strength there, but I developed it. So I would memorize conversations because I didn't really understand them in real time. So, you know, say you and I were having a conversation, I would smile a lot. Uh, I would memorize what you were saying. I would walk away and I would play it like a tape recorder over and over and over again. And then I say, I think that's what Patrick meant by that. But you hadn't waited for me for those two hours so that I could come back and actually have a conversation with you. And even if you had waited for me, Uh, It would be a long and interrupted conversation because then I'd have to memorize the next thing you said, walk away and play it over again. So I really, um, I think I had those strengths, but I honed them. Uh, It got to the point where I could listen to the newscast at six o'clock and if it was the same newscast at 11, I could repeat it word for word ahead of the newscaster. Like not not necessarily a great skill. (laughs) But but interesting nonetheless, right? And and what what a thing to, what a skill to develop because... To that point, how was your recall based on your memory? How what did it fade away after days or hours or weeks or how was your recall for for the- it was it was I think pretty good. I mean, I didn't remember obviously everything because you know at a certain point. Sure, and, all, and at some point all, you're choosing. All, I don't need to know that anymore, right? Exactly. <laughs> I got through that history exam. <laughs> Let it go. You know, the Battle of Hastings <laughs> in 1066, whatever. Um, yeah. So, but but you know, people that know me comment on my memory, right? And and so it is is there because I it, I think it always, as I said, was a strength, but I, I honed it. And we see that with students with learning difficulties is often uh, an area of strength. They will kind of hyper develop that to, to compensate for the, the area of difficulty. And then, I mean, the other strength that I had, and I mean, I didn't, understand at the time, but you know, what they talk about executive functioning, like I was tenacious, like, you know, you, you, I didn't understand much, but I kept driving and driving and driving and driving until I would get some sense of, of what, you know, was out there, the material. And I think if I didn't have that capacity, I would never have developed uh, this work because I would have given up like, and, and maybe that was the (laughs) reasonable thing to do would be to give up because, you know, to get through university, I used to hide out in the library, like in the washroom in the library. And when the security guards would come around after the library was closed, I would be hiding in the washroom so I could come back and work like overnight. So ultimately, you know, I would spend 20 hours a day, seven days a week studying just to tread water, you know, and whether that 
was a good thing. I mean, I, I compromised my immune system as a result. Um, but that that was that drive, that driven part of me. Well, you now, uh, I think you said you have four siblings. You're one of five. Yes. So, you know, through that time, you know, even into university, and but I mean, especially as a young girl growing up, your parents are dealing with five kids. That's a handful on any given day. And, and so then to have one child that's struggling and not just, you know, it's, it's not like, a, you, you know, they may have considered, you know, whatever mental handicap you might have, but you've, you know, you're kind of the odd ball out in this. So they've got one child that they're, you know, that, that is challenged and that they love and want to support, I'm sure. Then you've got four siblings. So what, and, and then you have this thing called tenacity, like you've got resilience. You're going to, you're going to get this handled. So something was driving you. How was your parents and your family in terms of that growing up? Were you, were they pretty supportive or were they just like confused, not knowing what the hell to do either? I, I would say, I mean, that they were supportive in the sense. I mean, I never questioned that they didn't love me and mm-hmm. they didn't want the best for me. But also it was it was kind of a time where there wasn't a lot of introspection. Sure. There wasn't a lot of understanding, um, you know, around these kinds of, of challenges. And also, you know, what I've seen when somebody has a learning difficulty, and I've talked to a little, thousands and thousands of individuals at all ages and myself included is we make a pact of silence, believe it or not. Like it's it's like, because there's still shame associated with having a learning difficulty somehow, you know, even if we know it's nothing that we did, we didn't, you know, create this, there's that idea of somehow we're less than, right? So we work really hard to cover it up, like to appear, you know, like we're okay. There's this, yeah, there's this concept called imposter phenomena, right? It's like, um, so we kind of feel like imposters, but we're really not wanting to let people in because it's like a house of cards. We think if they poke, you know, everything will, will collapse. And also I hear from students and I felt this way is we don't want to burden our parents, right? We don't, you know, we don't want to be a burden. We want to look like, you know, we're managing to, you know, work through. So, you know, even like the number of students where I've met the parents and talked to the parents and then I've met the student and the students had a very different experience than what the parents think. You know, they've been bullied. They, they, you know, lots of tears, but they don't want to let the parent know. So I just, I, you know, my wish is that we just have really open conversations and we just dismantle that pact of silence because silence, because there is, there should be no stigma, no shame, you know, to having a learning difficulty. So, you know, my, my parents, um, you know, at some level, I think, you know, once I learned how to read and write and the physical manifestations were sort of gone, other than around the mathematics, um, you know, I used to actually pull my hair out uh, and I used to go down in the basement of the house and bang my head on the dryer. And, a few years ago, I actually went back to the house that I grew up in in Peterborough, and it was for sale. And that old dryer was down there in oh, the gee. basement <laughs> with the dents in it for my head. Oh, like, my I think, like if I think I was trying to bang some sense into my head, but my father would try to teach me math from logic and reason and first principles and understanding, which makes sense. Um, but I couldn't do that. And I remember, you know, one of my brothers sharing with me that it was so painful. Like he could not even be in the room when my father was trying to teach me mathematics, right? So I would wait till my father went off on, you know, one of his um, uh, trips because he consulted a lot. Um, and then I would memorize the mathematics, right? And then I might do really well. So he thought he had taught me well, right? Well, it was 
was just, uh, you know, I, he, he didn't t- teach me well because I wasn't capable of learning. So it, it's just all those ways that we kind of hide it because, you know, we, we don't feel good about ourselves because of the, the challenges or the difficulties. And, and still, even today, uh, like the number of times that I hear, oh, he's just lazy or, you know, she's just not trying hard enough. I had one student that thought her better, middle name was Can Do Better right? Because that's all she heard. Deborah can do better. So for years, that's what she thought her middle name was. Um, you know, and the thing is, you know, if, you know, if you look at a student um, or an individual and there are areas that they excel in and then other areas that they're avoiding, that's probably an indication that there's a learning difficulty because we have a desire to master. It's just built into our DNA, like mastery motivation, you know, Maslow's work. Like we want to master things. So if somebody's avoiding something, you know, it's usually a pretty good indication that there's something interfering with with that kind of learning or that experience because that's leading to the, the avoidance. So it's someone recently said we should have respectful curiosity. I told her I was going to steal that that phrase. Like, so be respectfully curious. If somebody's avoiding something, like, let's get interested in and in why is that rather than just saying, well, you can do better or try harder. Um, so it's an, you know, it's an interesting, you know, Stephanie had, you know, struggled with dyslexia growing up. She was, you know, left-handed. And of course, then they trained her to be right-handed. And, and she was really, you know, she was quite, you know, she was dyslexic to the point where, um, you know, she was hiding it. She was, there was shame around that. And I've talked to many people, friends who had dyslexia and are struggling with it even to this day. But there was a time where, you know, there was a lot of shame around being that because nobody knew, it was, you know, learning mm-hmm. disability or not applying yourself or, you know, you can do better, right? You know, it's like, and it was such, there was a time where uh, people just didn't understand. I mean, so as I have come to understand a little bit of the work that you're doing, which I want to talk about, you know, you've been a, a, actually a real pioneer in in kind of working through all of this and what these cognitive challenges are. And so when did you, let's go back and before we get to that, but let's go back. So your university, you've got this thing going on. Was there a moment in time where, you know, the, the light bulb went on where you, you know, you saw a tipping point or found a path to go down that, when did it start to kind of come together for you? Yeah. So I think a couple of things, I think that belief that my father instilled in me, which was kind of fermenting in the background. And and it was that uh, if there's a problem in the world and currently no solution, he said, it's your responsibility to go out and see if you can find or create a solution. And then he said, if the rest of the world tells you you can't do it, he said, don't be limited by conventional wisdom. He said, this is how science goes forward. So that I had no idea what I was going to do, but that was there in the back of my head. And I will never forget the day. It was August of 1977. Someone handed me a book that that was my epiphany that changed my life. And it was a book written by Alexander Luria. And I dedicate my book to him because he really saved my life. Uh, And it was called The Man with a Shattered World. And it told the story of a Russian soldier, Leo Vizetsky. 
who uh, the Battle of Smolensk in Russia in, I think, 1943, had a very localized head wound, right, a shrapnel uh, in his brain. And this book was, um, Luria, who was a brilliant Russian neuropsychologist, was describing what was going on in Luria's, or in, in Zazetsky's brain as a result of the injury. And at the same time, Zazetsky was keeping a journal describing his, his experiences and his challenges. And as I read Zazetsky's journal, I thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, we're having the same experience. You know, I was keeping a journal. We were using the same descriptors, like talking about living in a fog where meaning was ephemeral. It would disappear into a mist. No matter how hard we tried, we couldn't grasp and understand things. He, um, before his injury, he could tell time, like read an analog clock. After his injury, he couldn't. I was now, I think, 26 years old. I still couldn't tell time. I still could not read an analog clock because you have to be able to see the relationship between an hour hand and a minute hand. My brain didn't see relationships. Before the injuries, Zetsky was uh, gifted. He was studying mathematics after he couldn't understand things as simple as fractions, right? Because it's a relationship, a part to a whole, all sorts of you know, similar experiences. So now I knew what my problem was. I mean, before I knew I had a problem, but, you know, to solve a problem, you kind of have to understand the nature or the address of that problem. So now I realized, oh my gosh, it's something in my brain that isn't working. Can I just, I just want to interject here. First off, the realization that with all of the challenges that you had, you still went to freaking university. Now that in its, in its, I mean, that blows my mind just hearing that. I mean, like I'm going like, so that, that resilience, that tenacity is pretty cool. What did you go to university? What was your intention in university? What were you going to be when you grow up kind of thing? Well, I first went to study nutrition. My mother was a nutritionist, right? Actually, she was, I think, the provincial nutritionist in British Columbia many, many years ago during the war. Um, but all the sciences killed me, right? Mm. So, so in my first uh, semester, after my first semester, I mean, I managed to pass everything. Uh, I realized this probably is not my path. And I'd always been interested in, uh, you know, how people learned because of my difficulties. So I then switched into child studies. Um, and really, I think a lot of my education was trying to understand, like, what was not right with me if I could understand how people learn. So I did child studies studies as an undergraduate. And then my graduate, my master's degree was in school psychology. Again, it kind of made sense because that's where uh, you learn how to assess and identify learning difficulties and, and uh, you know, other, other difficulties as well. So it just kind of feels like my whole schooling was, was part of that hunt for what's wrong with me and what do I do about it? Um, so, you know, some Sometimes I think, you know, when they say, you know, if there's a problem on the airline, the lights are going to guide you to safety. Well, I feel like, you know, those lights were on throughout my life and it was probably my parents, you know, guiding me in, in this uh, direction, but at an incredible cost. I mean, you know, my whole world was constantly, constantly working just, you know, just to tread water. And before I got Luria's book handed to me, I was going to all my professors in graduate school and here, these are the people that are training psychologists to do assessments. And I said, I think I have a learning difficulty, right? Their disability. And they kept saying, well, you can't, you cannot be in university and have a learning disability. Well, now we know that's not true. You can be gifted and have a learning disability. Um, but they didn't have that concept. This, you know, was in obviously 1977. So it just, 
felt like, you know, there's another door slammed in my face. So it was really Luria that gave me that that insight um, that this was what my problem was. And then at the same time, I was reading some of Rosenschwag's work. He was the psychologist at Berkeley in California that was looking at this idea of neuroplasticity with rats. And what he found was if, you know, you put rats in a really enriched environment with lots of stimulation and toys to play with, uh, and you compare them to rats in whatever a normal rat environment is and an impoverished environment with not much to do, the rats that had the enrichment were better at learning mazes, which is like an intelligence test for a rat. And then when he looked at their brains afterwards, he found they changed physiologically, like the more dendrites, so more branches, um, you know, that led to more synaptic connections, so better neurotransmission, more neurotransmitters, more glia cells. So what he argued was this enriched stimulation led to physiological and functional changes in the brains of the rats, which led to better learning. Then he did an experiment um, where the light bulbs went off. He blindfolded a group of rats and he put them in a very tactile environment and he saw the part of the brain related to sensory perception was what changed. So this one little sentence in his article, he said, differential stimulation leads to differential effect. So I thought, oh my gosh, if I can understand what my problem is, like from Luria's work, could I find differential stimulation? Could I find an ask, activity or task that would just work that part of the brain to change it? So I started again. I went back to my professors and said, hey, I'm really excited. Like, you know, um, I think I've found a solution here. And first they said to me, well, learning difficulties have nothing to do with the brain. That was the belief at that time. I'm not sure where they thought they lived, but wow. it wasn't the brain. Yeah. And, they, and then, then they said, and even if they did, your brain's fixed, so there's nothing you can do about it. But I figured if rats have neuroplasticity, surely humans must. And then I remembered what my father said. He said, you know, people say you can't do it. He said, don't listen, go out and try. So I figured, what do I have to lose? But time, and I couldn't tell time. But so. I mean, this had to be, I mean, that had to be, you had to be get pretty lit up about that because, you know, where you, you know, where at some point you were probably feeling pretty hopeless, you know, all of a sudden you can be hopeful because this light has gone on, this this door is open to crack to say, hold it, there may be, I may be onto something here. And all of a sudden, you know, there's no doubt when people have hope, then you can also be helped, right? Or you can help, you know, I mean, it, it, they go hand in hand. When you're, you know, when you're hopeless, you, you know, it's pretty, when you're feeling hopeless, you're pretty difficult to help. You know, that's always the case, yeah. right? So that must have been quite a, an awakening for you at that point, something to get pretty fired up about. It, it was, that's why I dedicate my book to Luria. Like I, I believe I owe him a life debt because I was intending to end my life at that point, right? Mm. To your point, I ha I saw no future for myself. Like mm. I, I had no hope. I, I hit a wall in terms of uh, what I could do. Um, and in fact, you know, I didn't finish my master's degree at that point. I took a break worked on that those areas and then went back in and was able because of the changes uh finish my master's degree but yeah i saw i saw no future i mean like nobody was ever going to hire me you know and because of all my struggles and i didn't understand things if you know i was in a job and somebody asked me to do something and i wasn't sure what i was supposed to do they weren't going to give me a couple hours to figure it out so I, huge despair i mean huge despair so so that's why you know it was just you know, 
getting that book handed to me. Um, and it was interesting. It was right around the time Luria died. He died, you know, I think in that month in Russia. So that's one of my regrets that I never had an opportunity to meet him. I've met a few of his students now that are, you know, around my age or older. And it's, it's been wonderful, like who also became, you know, uh, followers of, of his work and, and psychologists and professors. And, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I owe him a life debt. Mm, that's such a great, great, like, and, it, and I, I, I don't go there right now, but I mean, I'm also like, I can almost feel what, um, you know, the degree of being hopeless or frustration or angst and anxiety around what you were going through at that time, you get this, this light goes on, this door opens a crack or whatever it might be. So you have the realization, well, if a rat brain <laughs> can do it, I, I must be able to do something with the human brain. So what, what was kind of your journey? What was, where did you start to play and experiment with what would work with you? What was your kind of uh, next steps around that? Yeah, so I, I dove back into several of Laurie's books that have been translated into English. Uh, and, you know, in each of them, as he described this difficulty in this part of the brain, he talked about, you know, the person not being able to tell time, uh, obviously multiple other things, like you couldn't connect things, so you couldn't see relationships. So I thought, okay, how do I force my brain to process relationships? Because that's what I needed to do. Like I didn't need to, like I, I couldn't, it's not like teaching a skill or teaching content. I had to change the fundamental functioning of my brain to be able to do what it should be able to do. So I thought, okay, maybe clocks, maybe, you know, forcing myself to learn how to tell time might kind of like be weightlifting for that part of the brain in essence. So the idea is, you know, find the function of that part of the brain and then what kind of task or activity will drive that function. Uh, and again, I had no idea if it would work. And at that point, you know, I needed help because I couldn't tell time. So at one point I had this idea of, you know, I think I had three watches on my wrist all set to different times. And I and I think one was digital because digital was just coming out at that time. And then I look at it quickly and see, can I read it, right? Well, didn't really do anything other than it was really heavy on my wrist and caused like wrist pain. But then I thought, okay, you know, maybe I have to draw clocks, right, and and start to tell time. So it was this kind of iterative process um, with the hypothesis that, you know, I need to force my brain to process relationships. So, and I was determined. So I did like hundreds and hundreds of hours. Like, I don't know how many clocks did I draw those faces and then read the times. And then I got a random number generator. So I wasn't just, you know, memorizing them because that was always a worry with me because I had the good visual memory and I just mix them and shuffle them and have like a hundred clock faces that I had to read really quickly. And over time, I actually started to be able to read a two-handed clock really fast and really accurately, like sort of to do 25 uh, clock readings in 40 seconds or less. And that was great. Now I could look at a clock and tell time, but I didn't feel like my brain was changing. So I, the idea that you have to make it more complex, like add uh, cognitive complexity. So I added a third hand, like a second hand, got really fast at that. Um, that was great, but no change. So I said, okay, I have to add a fourth hand. And I mean, they don't exist in the world, but the idea was to force my brain to process four relationships simultaneously. So, you know, it was our hand, minute hand, second hand, part of a second. And that's where I got my breakthrough. After I got as fast as it was humanly possible and as accurate, so I was 90 to 100% accurate, my world 
changed and I knew there was human neuroplasticity because before with the best will in the world and putting huge effort, there were things, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do like understanding. Now I could understand. Like it, it was, um, it was like, it was, I felt like I was walking on air. Um, you know, I could listen to a conversation and I could actually understand it as the person was talking. I could actually say something. Yeah. You know, but that's an interesting point that you're making there. So first off, I want to go back just for kind of scope of the challenges. Like, so, and you talk about relatability and not being able to read a clock or not being able to read, but when it came to, let's say, I don't know, tying a pair of shoes, you know, relatedness, you know, this, this part of the lace over that part of the lace and wrap it around was, were, were those kinds of uh, mechanical things also a challenge for you at the time? You know, does it make sense for a button to go through a buttonhole, for example, were, were, were those kind of, or did that just come because you remembered it or where was there a relatedness to it? Yeah, th those kind of things just kind of came because yeah. I could do some of those like physically. But as soon as it was, you know, like, you know, my aunt, how I like, I just couldn't understand, like, how could my aunt be my aunt and be my mother's sister? Got like, it. You know, it's kind sure. of obvious. Like, it's, yeah. it's those conceptual relationships. Like, yeah, yeah. how could she have like, okay. how could she be like two people? You Understood. know, um, yeah, like, it, it's, it's, oh my gosh, like, when I think about it, like, you know, that mammals have mammary glands. Like, that was like, like a light bulb went off when I realized the connection. Like, so I memorized things, but there was no depth. Like, Got there was it. no, no, uh, you know, it was all surface. Okay, um, so that, that level of clarity help is helpful. So thank you. So now you go and you learn how to tell time. Now your brain's firing differently, but you're also seeing, I don't know, do we call it a ripple effect? Do we call it a, you know, because other things came out of that. All of a sudden you were understanding other things. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. Is that, so, and yes. all you did was learn how to read time, fire the brain a little different, open up a, a pathway and. Yeah. Well, what I believe it is, is it was, I was stimulating the function of that part of the brain that wasn't working for me. So I don't believe I was working around or going a different way. I was actually laser focused, targeted into that area and doing mental weightlifting for that area. So um, it could now do what it was designed to do, right? Uh, you know, so before, uh, I'm trying to think of, of an analogy, like if it just didn't have... Um, the strength to be able to do certain things. It didn't matter, you know, how much you tried to compensate or work around it. Just wasn't there. Now, because of the exercise and the activity, I'd built muscle in that or strength, and it could just do what it was supposed to do. Right? It just happened naturally. Like it wasn't like I had to go to study to be able to understand conversations. I could just I could understand like before. If I read a page in a book, you know, unless it was like Nancy Drew or something really simple, I would read that page like 10, 20 times to try to think, okay, what is this saying? And one of the things that Luria said in one of his books where I felt, okay, I'm not crazy because it explained my experience. He said, somebody with the difficulty I had can never verify meaning. So he said, you're, that person is constantly walking around in a state of uncertainty and the ground is constantly shifting under their feet. So there's never any uncertainty. And that was my experience. Like I was, uh, you know, I joke that I lived in amygdala hell. Like I, I, I was terrified all the time um, because I could just never understand. There was no certainty in my world. Like, uh, you know, I just never understood anything or, you know, why somebody did something or why this happened. Like, it, you know, I, another descriptor I had for myself was like, uh, you know, I was a puppet and there was a puppet master somewhere pulling strings but I had no, I had no locus of control, no 
feeling that I had control over my world because I didn't understand why things happened. Um, and one of the profound impacts of this work that I never anticipated was you know, as, as uh, I got the change, uh, every night as I was sort of drifting off to sleep because I have that strong visual memory, scenes would play over in my mind's eye from age four or five or six. And I say, oh my gosh, like that's why this happened. That's why this person did something. And it felt like that really fractured sense of myself started to integrate into a, a healthy and whole person. It, it just like, it was like all these you know, puzzle pieces started to come together and I understood, you know, my world. I started to understand myself. Like I, I, I had no insight, you know, and I've seen people that I've worked with that go to therapists to get support, you know, for this kind of confusion or uncertainty and they can't benefit from therapy because they don't have insight, right? Like can't make those connections. And sometimes then the therapist will say, well, you're just not trying, you're resisting. Well, it's not resistance. Their, their brain isn't capable of doing that. And that's, um, I don't know if you know Norman Doidge's work, The Brain That Changes Itself, um, you know, the research psychiatrist who's here in, in Toronto. And he got interested in my work because he saw some of his clients in the psychiatric practice that he felt their challenges were cognitive, not emotional. And so he would refer them to me. And as they worked through that same exercise, they could actually benefit from insight therapy. I mean, our brain is incredibly profound. Well, and and even as you're describing it, there's things that show up for me. And and, and I mean, such a, I mean, it must've been such a, a, a huge light that went on for you. And I mean, as you, you know, talked about reflecting and having these pictures go through your mind and connecting the dots of, you know, when you were much younger, I mean, at, at some point, you're also being socially shut down. Like, you know, you, you're not interacting with people so much because you've got this secret. You can't understand what they're saying. So then all of a sudden, this opens up a whole new avenue of conversation and discussion with people. Now, when you were talking about the work you were doing around, you know, learning how to tell time, were you being supported by other students, professor, friends, family, or were you just really taking this on your own and, and, and working through it for yourself? It was on my own and 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 by myself. I mean, I had to have somebody at the very beginnings, a friend, you know, help me kind of initially tell time, like, you know, it's sort of to, to you know, I really more check and correct, you know, my mistakes uh, as it were. But then as I got um, more capable, I, I didn't need that that support. No, it was just, um, yeah, no, I did. I did it. I did it on my own. You just figured it out on your own. I, I, that's just amazing. I just love that. I mean, that's such a great, great story. But it, it also speaks to your journey and your tenacity in doing what you're doing today. But so let's go back there. So you've learned to tell time, lights on, things are going. Now, what else are you learning about that? Because now you've learned to tell time. You say, okay, well, we can fire the brain differently. We can connect what connect synapses in the brain mm -hmm. to to think differently. But it also opens up other doors. It opens up other windows of things to look through and see life and understand things differently. And then, so did you start at that point to develop other exercises and you were kind of the, your own guinea pig for this stuff or? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. In, in essence, um, cause I had, I had multiple areas of difficulty. So <laughs> sure. that, that was, that was the one that, you know, to me was causing me the most angst. So, you know, I targeted that first, but then that, part that where I just didn't know where my body was in space. And that, that was challenging in that, um, mm. you know, I was bruised, like, you know, I go to walk through a door and I might like 
you know, wham myself on the side of the door jam because I'd misjudge. I had lots of bruises. You know, I've got a tooth that I lost because I went off the wrong end of a diving board. Um, you know, I went slammed a car door on my head. You know, it, it just, it was like this whole left side of my body was like an alien being. <laughs> you know, it would just do things that <laughs> weren't necessarily in my best interest. And, and then imagine driving a car. So if I didn't know where the left side of my body was. When I got into that car, I didn't know where the left side of that car was. So I would was really careful. Like I promise you, I didn't hit anybody, but you know, I hit some poles, you know, in parking. But how did so you know, I, just, to, just sorry to interrupt, but it's interesting that you talk about that. Was there a time where you actually thought that that part was a physical disability or did you always think it was, I don't know, what did you think? What did you actually think it was a physical disability? I just thought I was clumsy, you know, or a klutz, right? Yeah, you yeah, know yeah. how we have, have those sure. lovely labels, like, yeah. you know, just, you know, you know, just, keep me away from, you know, sharp objects because <laughs> I could cut myself, right? Yeah, I actually, don't I slice actually, the tomato. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I worked with a butcher that had that problem. And the first day I met him, his left arm was all wrapped up in bandages, right? Because he didn't know where the left side of his body was in space. I mean, it's funny, but it it's was funny, rather, yeah, rather, like, rather, well, rather painful. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I didn't, I just, you know, describe myself as clumsy, mm -hmm. you know, not, not athletically inclined. But, you know, as I was starting to understand Luria's work, I realized that actually, and Rosenschweig, that, that, you know, sensory part of the brain, the somatosensory cortex, thought, like, maybe that's where the problem is. Mm -hmm. So I went back in, thought, okay, let me see if I can create an exercise for that. So, so I did. And now, like, I don't dent my body. I don't dent my car. I can actually play sports. And before, it was almost at a level of a stroke. Like, the, I, I could not, if I picked up a coffee cup in my left hand, I would end up wearing it. The person next to me would end up wearing it because I, I couldn't regulate the sensory feedback of my movement. So I would over or under move like so that coffee cup could just go right over my shoulder. That doesn't happen anymore. Right. You know, uh, you know, so I'll never be a gifted athlete, but I can actually hold my own, uh, you know, athletically and I, I don't bang myself or bruise myself. So, so again, here was another example that a very different exercise, that differential stimulation, you know, you identify the function find an activity you think will work that function and see if you can change it, you know? And then I had a spatial problem, a third problem I went on to tackle. And that's where I couldn't um, conceptualize three-dimensional space in, in my head. So if you put something in a drawer, like for me, it didn't exist anymore, right? Like, you know, how if somebody's really good spatially, they can kind of visualize their way into three-dimensional space. They can do things like chess or checkers, like, you know, things with, three-dimensional elements, geometry, where you have the spatial, um, you know, angles and relationships, um, maps, you know, it's a way to tell if somebody has a little bit of a problem here. I mean, not that we use maps anymore because we've got, uh, you know, GPSs, but, you know, the person has to turn the map in the direction that they're going. Mm-hmm because they can't do that mental rotation. Um, I, I was really, really poor at that. And, and as, you know, growing up, I had this concept that I had to add lost time into everything I was going to do if I was going to go somewhere. I always added an extra hour because I knew I would get lost multiple times before I found my way anywhere, um, you know, because I just couldn't, understand maps. I couldn't understand like how streets connected. Uh, so I created an exercise for that. And now, you know, I travel all around the world and actually I prefer maps to GPSs because I like to see the spatial um, patterns. I can build Ikea furniture. Like before I couldn't go from 
two-dimensional representation into constructing something in three dimensions. Uh, sewing, you know, if I was sewing from a pattern, I would sew things backwards or upside down because again, there's that, that spatial translation you know, from two dimensions into three dimensions. Um, you know, an engineer has to be good in that capacity. Uh, a dentist has to be very good in that capacity because you want them to go from the x-ray and map it onto, you know, the tooth and drill the right tooth. So I saw changes in three very different discrete areas as a result of three very different exercises that I created for myself. And at that point, I thought, I want to take this work out into the world and help other people that have similar difficulties to me and then also different difficulties. And that's, that's where my work began back in 1978. So you've got this moment of hope, you're, you start to do this work and, you know, you're figuring out that I can rewire my brain. I mean, that's ultimately what you're doing. You're saying you, you've somewhere along the line, the light bulb's gone on, I can rewire my brain and it's working. Now, in, in, this, in this process of development and discovering and all the things that you're doing, is this a process of months or years? So when you started learning the clocks, that takes a period of time. Is there, is there, you know, this many years later, is there an understanding of how long it takes to refire a brain? Is there, or rewire a brain, if, if that's the right terminology to use? Uh, what were you discovering yeah. at that time? Yeah, well, it's, it's very individual is what I've discovered since then. Um, and some things move more quickly than others. Uh, for the, the first one that I worked on, that reasoning uh, piece, you know, it was probably, I started to see change and, and that's not unusual, around like two to three months, right? And then I wanted more. So I wanted to, I, I kept going to, like you can not only in a lot of cases, bring something from, you know, a deficit or a difficulty to average functioning. But if you can bring it to above average to put a strength where there was a difficulty, that that is really positive. So, you know, so I kept going and I actually even have levels now that I've never done, right? So I love it when I go to out to schools and see students doing it. I say, actually, you know, you're ahead of me on that exercise because I invented that level, but I haven't haven't done that. So, you know, it, it is variable. So for me, you know, it was probably over about a year span, you know, of, mm -hmm. of creating these well, exercises. That's, actually, that's and pretty, the, I mean, a lifetime, a lifetime of challenges and in, in over, a, you know, over the course of 12 months, you're able to do that level of uh, work. I mean, that's, I think that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. that happened pretty quick. I mean, you're also well, you're also pretty committed to it, right? I, mean, I, I, yes, I, like I don't not, not full time. <laughs> yes, I, I did. I get up in the morning, have breakfast, do the work, have lunch, do the work, have dinner, do the work, uh, yeah. go to bed, repeat. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and not not everybody wants to uh, to do, do it that. in that way. But but you know we we. Um, you know, we, we have all sorts of different options, you know, for have you students. Ever, have yeah, you ever yeah. looked at that? Because I want to talk about your schools and your book and all the rest of it. But as you reflect back on that, Barbara, where did that commitment, do you think, live? You know, because you make an interesting kind of point that I picked up on a little bit, which was, I mean, at, at, there had to be a huge commitment to yourself. I mean, at some point, you just were so determined to be more you know, and was that because you were, was there some place where you were comparing yourself to others? Like any sense of where that drive came from? Well, I think probably a number of places. I think in my family, I come from, you know, a pretty driven family. Sure. I mean, the expectation is we were all going to university. Like it just wasn't even spoken. It was just a fact. That's what you're doing, um, yeah. 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 So, so that, that was, 
you know, in the kind of family DNA. And then, you know, certainly seeing both of my parents, you know, worked pretty hard and intensely. So I had that model. Um, And I think also that prefrontal cortex, like the executive functioning, that is really the drive in our brain. Like that, that's what keeps us goal-oriented, focused, uh, you know, not distracted. If, you know, the butterfly flies out there, you might for a moment, but you come back to, okay, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. And, and uh, you know, sort of that feedback loop of, okay, this isn't working. So I get rid of that and I bring this in. I, that was a real strength for me. And I'm Sure, I inherited that from both of my parents because looking back, they were they were very very strong um, there. And then the desperation, like you know, at a certain point, to me, it was either I do this or I have no future and I'm not going to be here, right? So it sort of all came to a head at that point in August of 1977, where um, I, I was incredibly desperate, and I figured I have no idea if this is going to work. And I have to try because there is no other future. I mean, I'd done all the compensations that you know people do with learning difficulties all the way through my schooling. I learned how to color code. Like um, I would draw pictures because I would use my right hemisphere to try to map pictures onto language to see if I could understand language. I mean, even when I started reading Luria's books, like you know. They've got pictures in them. I color coded, you know, notes, vectors, you know. So I had either learned those or created them for myself, and it got me a certain distance. But I knew there, I, I there was no more distance I could go. Like I, I was done. I was done um, at that point. And you know, as I said, I, I compromised my immune system. I was getting ill all the time, like physically. And there's certainly research now to show if someone has a learning difficulty, they're more likely to have physical, um, like you know, health-related issues. Uh, there was a huge study done a number of years ago here in Canada, putting a Canadian face on learning disabilities, and it's one of the most brilliant studies uh, that looks at um, all sorts of. Um, uh, you know, factors related like emotional factors, social factors, uh, economic factors, and physical factors that that are related to having a learning difficulty. And I believe it's, you know, the stress hormone cortisol is not really your friend if you have way too much of it. And when you have uh, a learning difficulty, you, you can't escape it. I mean, your brain kind of goes with you everywhere you go. So it's it's not it's it's just there. And so it was that unremitting stress all the time um, that, you know, did a number on my immune system, right? So, yeah, so I was, I was desperate. So, you know, you've, you're getting these things figured out. You're coming out of university. You're somewhere in late 20s, uh, 30-ish kind of thing when you're starting to go along. And uh, by the sounds of it, I'm in my brain on the timelines anyways. But then you're, you're saying people, more people need to know about this. Yes. And and had you recognized at that time, because, I mean, there's certainly not internet uh, as so much back then, maybe some early stuff, but where were you seeing the, uh, the gap or how would you identify that, you know, more people need to this? Did you just assume that there's a whole bunch of people like you or what was your thought process back then? Yeah, well, uh, again, because I was studying school psychology, part of that was uh, um, doing assessments to identify learning difficulties. Mm. So I, I saw students in the the clinic, you know, at the uh, University of Toronto that I was working at as part of uh, my graduate studies, and um, and I also had a, a tutoring clinic, right? Um, that 
you know, to make, you know, some income, you know, while mm -hmm. I was going through through school. And not everybody that came to that tutoring clinic had a learning difficulty, but certainly some did, right? And again, it was using all the compensations and workarounds. Um, and when I saw the change for myself, I thought this is so much better than putting energy into compensating and working around. Actually, you address and, and strengthen the weak capacity, which then you don't have to do the workarounds and compensations. So I, you know, I had those experiences of seeing those students. And then uh, not too long after that, I met uh, someone who uh, was working at the, I think it's a, the YMCA in their vocational counseling department, right? So, you know, so he was seeing a lot of individuals, you know, 18, 19 that had finished high school, right? Um, but we're kind of looking at, you know, where do I go next? And, you know, some of them, it was really clear, but he saw a group where, you know, they were bright, but there were areas when he did his vocational assessment that looked like maybe learning difficulties, right? So, and he became aware of my work. So he started referring some of these individuals to me and it was fascinating. It was like a naturalistic experiment, right? So they would come through the door. Um, I would create, you know, little tests. I would go back into Luria's work. I'd listen very deeply because they didn't all have the same difficulties that I had. I mean, some had memory problems. And then I would try to think, okay, based on what they're telling me, maybe it's this problem. I go back and, you know, create some more little, you know, assessments. And over time, that's how the work evolved. And sometimes things ended up in the, the garbage pail, right? You know, which is, you know, as you're developing something or, you know, in science, there are definitely failures, right? That it didn't do what I thought it would do. But over time, you know, I developed a range of programs for uh, 19 different cognitive functions. And I'm clear that's not everything that can go wrong with learning, but it's a really broad base. And now we, you know, train teachers all around the world to deliver this program uh, for students as young as, you know, five. And we've worked with people up into their 80s. Um, so tell me a little bit about, let's, why don't we talk about Aerosmith program? Because you've gone through that, you've developed that. And, you know, I really get that that must have been just such a, an exciting time for you. And, and I'm sure that there has to have been part of your inspiration to continue even with that body of work was, I mean, you were getting results with your students, with kids you're working with. I mean, that has to be pretty fulfilling you, you, just in itself, seeing these changes and that the work that you were doing is going to make a difference in other people's lives. I mean, how ideal is that? I mean, it's what I love about rain and what we do, right? We get to, we get to live into supporting other people's success and learning and mm -hmm. all the things they do. I mean, it's, it's a pretty ideal way of operating for us, especially if you want to be a contribution to, to others. So at that time, you know, aside from the science of it, which, you know, the intellect will, I'm sure is what, what drove it to you. I mean, you, you had to be sensing that you're making a pretty big difference in people's lives. Would that be yeah. the case? Yeah, it, it was huge, right? I mean, I saw the difference in my life and then I wanted to offer that to other people. Profound. I mean, just, you know, things that maybe are really simple. I remember one student coming through the door and she had significant auditory memory problems. And she was just so happy. And I asked her, you know, what had happened. And that morning she was listening to the radio and she was able to remember the phone number. It was a dial-in contest, which she never would have been able to remember before. And, you know, she managed to get through. And then there was a skill testing question that they asked and she understood it and was able to answer it. And she won the radio contest. <laughs> like, so, you know, it, it, to me, it's the, it's the real life, um, you know, changes that, that are so, so profound. And, 
you know, sometimes people ask, you know, am I happy or satisfied with what I've done? And I think the answer will be never, never will I be, right? Because there's always another horizon. There's always another, um, you know, person out there that's struggling. It's like, I don't know if you know, you know, Rainer Marie Rilke, who wrote the, one of his poems, The Swan, Der Schwan, right? And it talks about like, lumbering through that uh, that which is not done like i feel like my life is lumbering through that which is not done it's, mm. it's always the the next um yeah the ne- next possibility uh so that that's just how how i'm wired but i mean to see you know see that the transformation um and and the possibilities that these individuals have no matter you know what age and we're now working out actually in vancouver uh, there's an organization called ABI Wellness, so Acquired Brain Injury Wellness, and they've taken uh, some of my work and they're applying it to people with chronic brain injury, and it is fascinating. We're seeing the same results because we're doing imaging research at the University of British Columbia. Uh, we've done it both with students with learning difficulties and with this group with uh, acquired brain injury, and seeing very similar kinds of changes. Right? It's just it's it's profound. Like it, it's transformative where you know these people would have been marginalized that now can go out and engage um, in the world and that's you know we've got a huge research initiative going uh, with researchers in at Southern Illinois University in the states UBC uh, we've done some research at University of Calgary we're doing research at a university in Madrid um, earlier this week I spoke to uh, researchers in uh, Geneva and Switzerland that are interested in and in doing work so we're now actually imaging the brain so 40 plus years ago I hypothesized based on Luria's work and Rosenschweig's work that this work was changing the brain, which was what needed to be changed to allow all the learning to go forward. Um, and now we're actually seeing in the imaging that yes, the brain of students going through this program is changing. You know, so, well, it's, so, it's te- really- yeah, so technology's opened up a whole new door to the body of work that you're doing is fantastic. Let's go back and, you know, so you start to develop the programs. Where did the, you know, where did the whole idea of Aerosmith schools and uh, come from? Because one thing to have a program, it's another to, you know, go on this business entrepreneurial journey called, okay, well, let's, let's take this to a whole new level and build schools or not build them, but open yeah. schools and, and yeah. do your thing. Where, where are, uh, how did that start to kind of come to life, Barbara? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. If anybody had told me I was going to be an entrepreneur, I would have said, you're crazy. That's not, in, not, <laughs> yeah, not in my makeup. But, you know, so I was still working in this uh, tutoring clinic, right? So these were students that were coming to me after school that were, you know, spending the day in school struggling and having to put in extra effort. And then to do this work, they were having to also come after school when they were exhausted and and do the work that I developed. And I thought, this is doesn't make sense, right? So what is a student's job is to spend the day in school. So why don't I open a school? So that was uh, 40 years ago, actually. It's our 40th anniversary right. um, for Aerosmith School in Toronto. Uh, so September of 1980, opened a school so that the students could actually do this work you know, as part of their regular curriculum. Um, and so that's that's where it started. It was really because I saw a need for these students, you know, not to be torturing them after school when they were already exhausted. Um, and then in, I think it was 1996, uh, I thought, 
you know, it's great. I've got my school in Toronto. I'm, you know, I'm helping students, but it, you know, it's a small number of students. And I thought, how do I take this work out into the world to help more students? And so at that point, I started talking to other educators. Um, and I talked to educators that developed reading programs mainly because nobody at that time had really developed a cognitive program just to learn like, you know, what was their experience, what worked. And what I kept hearing from these individuals was they felt, you know, they had developed a good program based on good science. They would, you know, train teachers to implement the program maybe in two or three days. And then basically they would give them the materials and send them out into their classrooms with no follow-up. And what happened over time, because not everything works exactly as designed, um, so the teachers might start modifying the program. And basically at the end, nobody was happy. The people that developed it weren't happy. The teachers weren't happy because they weren't getting the results. And I thought, I have to build in a big support component of whatever I do if I take this out in the world to really support the teachers and educate them and do ongoing professional development. So ultimately, we're supporting the end user who is the student. Uh, So that was the growth of my model. Um, And so I started working uh, with a couple of schools in in Toronto and in the Toronto Catholic District School Board, uh, implementing uh, the program and learning, you know, how to train, you know, how to build support in. And now I think we're in 95 schools in 10 countries. And the idea is, you know, I have two schools that I own, one in Toronto and one in Peterborough. But I thought I don't really want to own schools all around the world. So we uh, create partnerships with existing schools where we train the teachers, we provide all the methodology, um, the assessment, the programs, uh, and do ongoing support and training for the teachers. And now we have a huge um, database that basically almost down to the student's keystroke is tracked. So I'm a big, like I love big data. Um, So we have huge amount of data and we've built in kind of algorithms and benchmarks. So every single student's progress through the work is tracked. And if we see that somebody is not moving in the way we expect, either going too fast or too slow, then we start a dialogue to try to understand, is there another area that's interfering? What's going on? So we can ensure uh, really, really good delivery. And the favorite part of my work is when I get to go out into the world and visit these classrooms because all of us have a student number because we track the data. So I'm student 0001. So I was ground zero. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Ground zero. <laughs> so I, I'm, I was one of them, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and we relate. Like, I mean, we it just it does my heart good because, you know, I am them and they are me, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we, uh, yeah. And I learned from them. I mean, uh, it was a student that's still bubbling around in my head that I met in Melbourne uh, in Australia uh, in February uh, that, you know, has triggered an idea of maybe how I can, you know, do something in one of the exercises. So I'm, I'm always like a little sponge learning yeah. as, as I go out there and, and the students are my greatest teachers. So I, I, I love what I do. I mean, sometimes there's a little too much of it, sure, but, but I love it. Well, I know. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, Stephanie and I talk about that often with people is that, you know, everybody goes, you're so busy. You're, you're always working. I go, well, I don't know if you, if your work is work, then I guess you're working. But if you love what you do, then it, 
just what you do. It's just your life, right? So I have a different perspective. Now, the, the I mean, it's a, a fantastic legacy. You know, Barbara, is you talk about, you know, the, the, the guidance and the wisdom that your dad passed on to you in terms of, you know, if just because the masses don't accept it or, or you know, if you see that gap, move through it, you know, look at it and, and fill that gap. And in the body of work that you're doing, I mean, because it's science, because there's stories about scientists and all the rest of that goes on, politics and the things, were you pretty widely accepted early on in this body of work or were, or, or did you have peers that were going, yeah, I don't think so. Like, were, did you have to fight through that on top of it? Uh, yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I remember, I mean, because again, and, uh, you know, when I went to my professors in 1977, they said that learning disabilities have nothing to do with the brain and there is no human neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Or if there is, it shuts down at, you know, age 10 or 11. So that was the worldview. I mean, it was the, what I call the pre-neuroplastic paradigm. I mean, the belief was, you know, the brain is pretty fixed. And so if there's a difficulty with it, you learn to live with it. Um, so no, there was, huge resistance, uh, huge at the beginning and, and lack of, of support and, and actually quite, you know, uh, uh, points, a pretty disheartening, you know, smear campaign, you know, around, around my work. But I thought, okay, I thought I have, I have two choices here. Um, one choice is, you know, I can spend a lot of energy and effort trying to change people's belief systems, or I can spend that energy and effort into developing my work. And I thought, I'm going to spend the time and energy in developing my work. And if there is validity and truth and credibility in what I'm doing, the world will move in that direction. And here we are, you know, all those years later, where, you know, it's like my, my research on my work is being presented, you know, the Society for Neuroscience, like July next week, conference is going to be a virtual conference now, because it was supposed to be in Vienna, but the International Neuropsychological Society conference work is of, you know, it's not, I'm not doing the research, but researchers who are investigating my work are presenting on my work. Um, the group in Madrid were supposed to be presenting at a big conference in Prague in July. I mean, that's on hold now because of COVID, but, you know, it, it's this, you know, there's a body now of research saying that what I postulated 40 plus years ago actually is true, right? So, you know, I, I think I took the right approach, you know, not 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 fighting. And I don't believe fighting in that way. It, it wouldn't have changed people's ideas because it, it, it was their belief system. Sure. They were educated, the brain is fixed. And there's still a few people today uh, that uh, oppose my work. But again, you know, I think we're just going to continue to do the research and show what's happening, you know, for these students, not only in their brains, but as the brain is changing, cognition is changing. And we were demonstrating that on very, a lot of different measures, academic performance is changing, social, emotional um, well-being is changing. And one of the researchers actually looked at cortisol and cortisol is being reduced in students going through the program because stress is less, because now they can engage and understand uh, their world. So, and we, we've now got research students just in regular classes. So students not identified as learning difficulties who 30 minutes a day, five days a week in their 
regular grade three class are doing one of the cognitive exercises and we're seeing significant changes. Like if you have a brain, you can enhance it, right? You can stimulate it if you work on the cognitive exercises. So there's huge application for this work. Within the, the podcast, I mean, the podcast is, you know, really built around seemingly ordinary individuals who achieve extraordinary results. And you go through what you've gone through, you get tested, you stay true to your, you know, you tr- stay true to your path and what you believe and what you know, and, and the testing that you're doing, and you come out the other side and you face those adversities, which of course, growing up, you were built to face adversity. I mean, it, it was kind of in front of you, you either <laughs> do it or you don't, right? And uh, you hit that kind of, you know, dark night of the soul or whatever that might've been for you, mm-hmm. and, and you bust through it. And, and that's an amazing uh, kind of story. But when you come out the other side, as you you know hear uh, the difference you've made in the world, the legacy that you're leaving. Um, tell me a little bit, you know, because there's, there's you know, when we're talking about firing the brain, you know, learning difficulties aside, okay, I, I can say I have learning difficulties. You know, I, I always, to this day, I cannot figure out why I'm so bad at remembering names. Yet I have huge memory in so many other things, like to the point of, like you, I can bring back conversations and almost remember every word of a conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stephanie would argue with me on that point, but it's true. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I can reach back in the recesses of my mind and pull certain things up. So the question is this, based on what you're saying, we can train ourselves to, you know, fire our brain differently, you know, open up those synapses, get, you know, shift our cognitive, what would you say, cognitive capacity, or I don't know what the yes. right terminology would be. That, that's it. Okay. Cognitive capacity. Okay. Yeah. So, so there's a little trick, you know, there's a, there's a, tell me something because I've always, I've been told. And so I believe it. I've never researched it. Children who learn to play the piano are generally have better math skills. That's that, I don't know if that's a, a story, a myth, but you think about the idea of learning to play the piano and all the things, learning to read music, but then actually the physicalness of it. Uh, would that would a statement like that be probably make sense? Yes, I mean because they're stimulating certain aspects of the brain that are related also to certain aspects of numeracy. So so yes, I mean there's certain things that um, you know that work cognitive function, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so so ab- absolutely yes. There is definitely research looking at at that. I'm a, you know, my brain is fired. I'm very right. You know, I say that all the time. I'm, I'm very right. You know, which is to say that the right side of my body is, is so clear and, and I, you know, I'm stronger. I'm all the things, but, and my left was always uncoordinated and really, but I started working with my left. Like I, you know, I trained, I would use my left side more. I'd use my left hand more. I would do things left, left, left. And it's amazing the difference. I don't know if I'm smarter for it, but I feel more in balance physically because of it. And, and I had no measurement. Like I didn't say, okay, well, I wonder if I'll remember names better if I work the left-hand side of my body, but this is just context, right? This is kind of what you're saying is, is that. Yeah. There, I mean, I believe there are multiple windows in to stimulate the brain, right? I mean, my work is just one, one aspect or one way to do that. But I mean, I've met people again, as I travel, that realized there was they had a difficulty just like you're, you're describing there and they created some activity or work to improve that function. So, you know, you created your own cognitive exercise, right? By doing that, there's work, you know, I'm not suggesting either of us were stroke victims, but where, you know, they would, um, you know, 
constrict the good side to force the person, it's Edward Taub's work, right? To, to force the, the area that was, was damaged to actually have to start to move. And that stimulated the brain that then, uh, you know, allowed more motor functioning. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think there are lots and lots of ways that people can create their own cognitive exercises to stimulate um, the brain. I mean, you know, the challenge with some of the, you know, programs that you see out there, because now the brain is a hot topic, um, what I would say, and stimulation is good. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these these programs, uh, general stimulation. But if you have a learning difficulty, you need targeted stimulation. Like, you know, you, you do something that's kind of like a scattergun approach, like it's stimulating multiple different areas. It's actually not going to necessarily be a benefit to someone with a learning difficulty because they need something targeted to the area of their difficulty. And the brain is incredibly complex, right? Um, You know, there was just research that came out of Cambridge in this past February, you know, looking at individuals, I think 330 individuals identified as having learning difficulties and what they said, oh, these labels, these diagnostic labels aren't very useful, like dyslexia, dysgraphia. It's actually have to look at the cognitive functions and it's weakness and connectivity, which is what our research, the imaging research is being done on students in Aerosmith is showing a brain pattern of under connectivity. So the the areas where they're weak, they they don't have strong connectivity within the networks or between networks. And then the brain is compensated by having areas that hyperconnect, just like you know, my super duper memory. Um, but those hyperconnected areas are trying to compensate for the weaker areas, but they really can't because they're not designed to do that. So you have a really inefficient brain. And what we're seeing in the research as students are going through Aerosmith is those uh, underconnected networks are starting to strengthen in their connectivity. We can actually measure that. And as a result, the hyperconnected areas are starting to relax. They aren't having to work as hard. So you get a brain that's much more efficient uh, in processing. And you know, I've worked with some very creative people, like visually creative, musically creative. And as they go through some of the programs, you know, what they find is their creativity goes on even to another level because it's like energy is freed up in the system that wasn't having to go into kind of compensate for some of the difficulties. And you know, so all of a sudden now that energy that was going into compensation is freed up to go into creativity. Have you, based on your data now, Barbara, are you, have you come to a place where you know, you're connecting, you're able to connect dots for students. So in other words, if you're doing some level of test to get a benchmark and you're seeing where those challenges lie, that you can actually, I'm assuming, and I, and I don't want to assume, that you can actually assign, you know, specific activities or tests or training or whatever that would deal with that specific issue? Is that, has, have you got it that kind of dialed in? Yes, we do. So any, anybody um, that you know comes into the work, we do a one-day assessment that looks at the 19 functions that we can work on, and it creates a, a profile, a, a unique learning profile for that student uh, across those 19 functions on actually a 12-point scale. So the combinations and permutations are pretty wild. Um, and based on their profile, there's kind of a triage that happens. I mean, it used to be happening in my brain, but I realized, you know, I, you know, I may not be here forever. So I work with software developers and it's now in a, I'm being replaced by a computer mm, uh, software program. <laughs> so now the program will look at that profile and say, for this student, here are the critical areas. Like, you know, something might be severe, but it's not as critical as a mild problem because that mild area 
has a broader impact in terms of their functioning. So absolutely, they'll say, okay, for this student, here's what they need to work on. Here's where they need to start. And then we track as they move uh, through the program. Like we, we track hugely, you know, as, as, and then at the end of a year, if they're in the program, um, we do a reassessment. And then based on that assessment, uh, okay, this area is no longer an issue. We can drop it out. And if you want to continue here, here's the next area in the sequence. So we have people that come in, you know, to a school like in a full-time program. So they're just working most of the day on cognitive areas. We have part-time programs. We have an intensive program like what I did, where for six weeks, five hours a day, five days a week, students are just doing that reasoning exercise. And we're seeing amazing results. We have people flying in all around the world. We now have it in Thailand, in Australia, New Zealand, um, because not everybody can spend, you know, 10 months working on something. And it's about four hours per week to affect change. But some people can take a compressed amount of time and and work on that area. So to me, I'm, I'm always looking at, you know, how can we make, this work more accessible and the benefit of COVID uh, for this work is, you know, those 95 schools all had to close their doors physically around the world. And all of a sudden, how do they keep going in this program? So within, we'd been doing a lot of development work with uh, Alteryx, a software development company. uh, And within probably three weeks, uh, we had pivoted. So every student around the world was able to uh, enter a virtual classroom with their their teacher and continue with the work and monitoring. And we've just been getting you know feedback and some students are doing even better in a mm-hmm. virtual classroom than in person. And so now, um, not just in response to COVID, but we're now developing this as a delivery um, model. So geography will not be a barrier. I mean, somebody could be in Timbuktu and access the program. Uh, because they don't have to physically be in the school. So I'm really excited. I mean, that was part of my vision. Maybe in three years from now, we'd have, you know, Aerosmith online, but we have Aerosmith online right now. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, and and Rain was the same way. I mean, we did live events. I mean, we really are an adult education, adult coaching program. I mean, that's what Rain is built on. It happens to be in the world of investing in real estate and teaching people. But along the way comes, you know, personal professional development, all those things. But ultimately, we were able to pivot very, very quickly into this kind of virtual world. And we're seeing that Mm -hmm. people actually are, many are learning better and getting more out of that delivery system than actually these live events where, you know, some people aren't necessarily comfortable in a live scenario, plus the geography, mm-hmm. plus the time, plus all the things that come with it. So it's, that's that's kind of interesting. I had a question for you, and, I, and it comes from me because uh, Stephanie, you know, Stephanie grew up dyslexia, left hand, learned to do right. So, it, I mean, Stephanie's a really, really bright lady. And, and but I also see where, because we've talked about it, her and I many times about how her brain fires because of that because of growing up that way. So for you, when you look at all the work you've done and, and your, you know, your own development, do you see where some of the gifts that you have today, whether it be you know, memory, and, or, you know, primarily I think that's part of it, or the way you look at things, do you still rely on it? Would you see that gift you have as like, a good thing? <laughs> I did all that work early on. Does it right. show up that way in how you learn, how you process? Do you still see gaps? What do you, how do you observe yourself these days? It's a really interesting question. I, I, um, you know, I think, I mean, those memory pieces are still there. Are they quite as sharp as they were when I had to use them as a compensation? I don't think so because I don't have to rely on them. I have other things that that work now, right? Um, but they're still 
probably pretty exceptional, you know, but they, you know, and I'm, and I'm actually quite happy that I don't have to rely on them and I can actually sure. understand yeah. uh, what, what people say. I'd say for me, you know, it, it's a really hard question, you know, because so, some people say, you know, would I have preferred not to have the learning difficulties I had, but they shaped me, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and incredible, incredible pain. I mean, I, you know, incredible pain growing up. Um, but it, it, if I took any of that away, I wouldn't be the person I am now and I wouldn't have developed this work. So, you know, everything led me, you know, to, to creating, um, this, this work. And I, I think, you know, if I conceptualize or think about what, what I think this work does is it opens possibilities for people, right. Um, you know, and a lot of the adults that I work with talk about, you know, when they went to choose their career, uh, you know, several doors were closed to them, right? And now what this work does is it opens more doors and more possibilities. They still might make that same choice, but now it's a choice rather than kind of being forced in a certain direction. And I think, you know, a lot of these students, and again, depending on the degree of the the difficulties, it causes suffering, like it, it causes suffering and pain. And I think fundamentally this work, it, it alleviates suffering and that you know, a number of years ago, I remember a group of students, you know, sharing with me that they stopped at a certain point daring to dream. Like they just said, we just basically shut down our dreams because like me, they didn't see a future for themselves. And that just broke my heart. And so I I think what this work does is not only does it allow people to dare to dream, but it gives them the cognitive capacity to actually be able to realize those dreams, right? Because it's one thing to have dreams, but you have to have kind of the wherewithal to be able to do the things to realize them. And that's what these students, um, students can do. And I've seen, you know, students 30 years out of the program that come back to me, 20 years of the program, they still have that increased cognitive ability. Like it's not like a muscle, you know, we stop going to the gym and our muscles atrophy. And I think what happens, uh, even though we use the analogy of a muscle, the brain isn't exactly a muscle, but what happens is once those areas are strengthened, they start to get their own stimulation by working within the neural network on a daily basis, right? Whereas before it was a drag on that that network because, uh, you know, the the weaker areas were causing the stronger areas to to have to work too hard. And now they're all engaged in working in everyday activities and getting their own stimulation. Like we, we see no drop off of function. Like people don't have to continue to do the exercises. Um, you know, I, I just, every once in a while, you know, think back to, you know, that person I was at 26, you know, seeing no future for myself and, and the despair, uh, you know, I, I don't want anybody to have to be in that that place. And that's what drives me to do this work is, um, yeah, to allow those individuals to have the capacity to be able to dream and realize their dreams. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I even hear that in, in your language and just, you know, how you show up in, in this conversation is that there's, there's, is I mean, there's got to be so much um, relatedness that you have to your students because of your own journey. I mean, I think that there's got to be a part of you that has so much compassion and empathy and understanding of what people are going through that at some point, you know, in your own growth, you know, through childhood and your parents and and really being driven to say, you know, I can make a difference in other people's world and be really attached to that because you know what people are going through and and go, I can make that go away. I can help you. I can, you know, I can help you achieve those dreams. Whether you're saying that directly, but in the back of your mind, there's there's just got to be a part of you that, you know, 
has that such strong relatedness and compassion for people. And I think that's pretty powerful. It's very cool. absolutely. It, it, it's it's a driving driving force. You know, beside my computer in my home study, I you know have a picture of this young girl. I think she was like four and a half when she came to me, and you know, and at that point, I'd never worked with somebody that young, and her parents both you know begged me to try. So I had to create simpler exercises, which is what happens with this work. Like it gets driven by who walks through the door and, um, you know, and, and so, you know, her picture there is to remind me, you know, always to grow and to learn and to push boundaries. She's now a medical doctor, you know, mm. uh, you know, and, and it's just, you know, like, rather than saying, no, I've not done this before, how can I do this, mm -hmm. right? And and how can I, I benefit this individual, right? So, yeah. And your journey is, I mean, when you think about your own journey, Barbara, personally, you know, you've, you've, you come from that history. There's wounds that, you know, we all suffer, you know, growing up through all of those things. And, you know, this wasn't, you know, there was also in, I'm assuming this, although I do know a little bit about some of the, a little bit of work you've done other than, because you and Stephanie knew each other some in some past part of what you did, or, you know, you still know each other. It's not like you've forgotten about each other. So <laughs> I'll be a little careful about that. But I mean, ultimately, um, the, the point of that story is, is, or that comment is, is that you've done a lot of, and you continue to do, I'm assuming a lot of just personal professional development. You've had to heal some wounds. You've had to go to kind of go through that, that past and where you are today is really driven by, you know, how, how the outcome of this. So, you know, are you encouraging people like as they're going through your own program, are you sharing stories of your own life? Are you, are you talking to you know, are you giving people and parents hope through your your own experience, your own stories? Is that how that kind of evolves as well, Barbara? It does, and that was partly writing the book, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is was it's not just my story, but my story is woven through. You know, and and certainly I get a lot of um, feedback in my TED talk as, as well, you know, that people relate to it because it's like, I'm just like, I saw myself in Zazetsky. People see themselves in, in my story and, and uh, my, my journey. And I mean, talking about the personal development work, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it before when I had the difficulty because I wouldn't have had insight. Um, and I, you know, was very naive when I started this work. And in some senses, I thought, okay, you, you address the cognitive problem, you know, you, you rewire the brain, you strengthen those areas, you know, all that emotional stuff's just going to disappear. Like, you know, it's like, you know, a light switch is going to go on. <laughs> well, it'll go away. <laughs> yeah, it'll just, just go away because, you know, my, my world will be different. Well, you know, maybe if I was five, but, you know, at 26, 27 you know, kind of stuff had been embedded, you know, in my system. And so, I, you know, I realized I actually need to get some therapeutic support, you know, to help me dismantle, you know, a lot of those patterns that really weren't, you know, very healthy or very constructive. Uh, and then I also realized that if I really want to take this work out into the world, uh, you know, it's kind of like physician heal thyself. Like I, I needed to do my work to not get in the way of, 
having this work go out into the world. So that that also was a huge um, motivator in, in terms of yeah, looking at the, my patterns, which were self-limiting and and uh, you know not not conducive to um, being kind of a vehicle or a vessel for this work. So yes, wow. well, and that would open up a whole different conversation, Barbara. I know I've taken a lot of your time, and I do so much appreciate the, the this conversation. I, I find it fascinating and um, really, really uh, kind of am blown away by the depth of the story and your journey. And and thank you so much for sharing it. So we'll wind down because I could literally go on <laughs> like you just like I, I wanted to talk more about your book and all sorts of things, but maybe we can make this happen again. Another uh, part two one day down the road. I would look forward to it. As I wind down the podcast, Barbara, we always uh, try and have a little bit of fun and some laughs and a, you know, a kind of a quick uh, rapid fire questions and uh, mm-hmm. have some fun with it. And then they're <laughs> only as rapid fire as they are. <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, you talk about the book that kind of changed your life, took you on a whole different path. And of course, you've got the book that you wrote. But what are you reading these days or what is one of your favorite books to gift? Oh, I, I, I don't know what gift. I, I'm a little embarrassed. Like, I, I love uh, mystery and detective stories, right? <laughs> so, okay. yeah, oh, good. Well, yeah. that, no, but that's a good point. You read fiction. That's brilliant. I, okay. Well, I, I do. I, I like. I have this idea of mind candy, right? Because a yeah. lot of you know my reading, it's you know, for work is, sure. is really dense. So <laughs> yeah. you know, but but I love like you know Camilla Lackberg mm-hmm. and you know uh, you know the kind of and Donna Leone. Her books are set in uh, Venice, like, you know, kind of a, like a really well-written, well-crafted um, uh, mystery or detective sure, story sure. where I can just actually go to a different country and, you know, follow mm-hmm. a character through a journey. I love that too, um, by the way. I, yeah, lo- I love yeah. that type of reading as well. And I don't read a lot of fiction, but when I do, uh, particularly on vacations and stuff, that's what I'll read. I enjoy that kind of stuff as well. I get it. Favorite inspirational quote? Oh gosh, um, it's got to be probably something of Brené Brown, like you know, in her courage to lead. Mm-hmm. Like you know, I think I, I don't know a specific quote, but you know, lead through courage and vulnerability. Um, you know, I just learned uh, a new a Maori word from New Zealand, mana, uh, which is to me embraces that is a whole concept in that that word. So uh, maybe mana is my my new word. Mm. It's like courage and grit and resilience and and being open and vulnerable and humble. Um, so any any quote that has those concepts in it. Yeah, beautiful. Well, uh, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? Um. Oh, gosh. Uh, you can rest now. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Very good. Favorite tune? Favorite tune? Yeah. Uh, Sibelius's Violin Concerto done by Ida Handel. Wow. You came to that really quick. Oh, I, it's, oh my gosh, it's, it's one of the, and I, at, I think she was like 78. I heard her actually perform it. It's, um, it's just to me, I love violin music. If I'd ever been able to play an instrument, it would be the oh, violin. And to me, that's one of the most beautiful pieces of music in the world. I'm going to listen to it. Barbara, what are you grateful for? Oh, what am I grateful for? I'm grateful for my parents. I'm grateful for my brothers. Um, I'm grateful for my health. Uh, and I'm grateful that I'm able to do this work. I'm incredibly grateful for that. 
And I'm incredibly grateful to have had you on the show and to have had the honor of uh, having this conversation with you, Barbara. Mm. And um, today I'm grateful for some amazing weather in the Fraser Valley of British Columbia and that uh, I'm hanging out with my wife a little bit today. So Mm. today that's what I'm grateful for. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me on Uh, the show today. It's been an absolute delight and a pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.